Well, good. Good morning, Weymouth. Welcome. Come on in. Grab a seat. Welcome to uh, October here. Thanks for being with us this morning. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm the pastor here. We're really glad you've, you've chosen to join us uh, in person or online here for worship. And uh, as we get started, we will just take a few moments uh, just in, in silence in our own hearts to pray and prepare our hearts for worship. So please bow and pray with me. Prophet Isaiah declares in Isaiah 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Father, this morning we pray to you, not because we bring to you anything worthy in ourselves, but we pray to you because in Christ we have one who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, who bore on the cross the chastisement that brings us peace with you. So help us this morning to worship you in humility and joy and wonder, the fact that we can come into your presence through faith in Christ, our perfect Savior, our suffering servant, in whose name we pray, amen. Please stand and sing with us.
Oh, 
Just a couple of announcements uh, to make you aware of here as we continue on in worship, and then we'll uh, have a time of, of pastoral prayer, and then uh, uh, later on in the service, after we sing a few more songs, we'll have the sermon, and then at the end, we'll have a time of communion, a time in the Lord's table together. Um, so we're, we're grateful you're here with us this morning. Uh, just a few announcements first, just some, uh, some notes about some, some changes uh, to the facility around here. You might have noticed some, some updates with some decorations and some furniture being moved around. Uh, so I just wanted to highlight a couple of things. One, uh, we've uh, made some changes to the community room since we are now using that on Wednesday nights with Weymouth Kids. So that's a plug. If, if you have any kids, fifth grade and below, uh, part of our family nights on Wednesdays is we have uh, ministry that happens in there for, for kids uh, led by Jen Martin. So we moved some things around in there for that, but we also moved some chairs in there, moved coffee out to the, the front counter, and uh, part of our hope with that is to create space for people to fellowship and, and mingle on Sunday mornings, before the service, after the service, uh, but also to provide a space for you to use during the week, uh, to meet with friends, to read the Bible, to come do homework, to do tutoring, to invite people who uh, might not normally walk into a church to, to come in and just meet and, and fellowship during the week. So. Uh, so some of that is in progress and ongoing, but that's some of the reasoning behind that. And then also uh, in the prayer room, in one of the, that first room on the left, if you head back into kind of the Sunday school hallway, uh, we are also in process of, of filling the bookshelves in there with just uh, books, building out a library in there for, for anyone to come and take and borrow a book and, and then bring it back. So we'll have Bibles in there, commentaries, different uh, books about the Christian life and, and theology. So uh, that is open to anyone who would like some resources to come read a book, uh, borrow it, bring it back. Uh, we're going to do that on the honor system, right? We're not going to have labels or sign outs. I thought about uh, making AJ just live in that room and just having to, you know, observe everybody takes a book and that's going to make that part of your job. Uh, but I cited against it. So uh, that'll be, if you ever need resources, they're in there. And then we have that one hallway with the baskets, which we'll put books and resources in. Anything that's in there is just free to take and keep uh, just for your own benefit. So, so that's, that's some of what's happening. Just as you see some of those things changing, that's some of the reasoning. If you have questions, you're more than welcome to come talk with me and, and we can discuss it. And if you have ideas, I'd love to hear your ideas as well because um, we want to keep using this place as a space to invite uh, the world in and also serve uh, our community and our friends here in Medina. So uh, that's one thing. And then uh, secondly, uh, at the end of this month, on October 28th, that Saturday, we are having our, our Weymouth Family Festival. So this is going to be a time we'll have trunk or treat. We'll have uh, some soccer going on. We'll have uh, hot cider and hot chocolate, pumpkin carving, uh, pumpkin painting contest. There's going to be a lot of fun things happening. Uh, so we sent an email out about that. We also sent out a, an invite card. We're going to put that invite card on the website as well. So if you want to download uh, a digital card to invite friends, neighbors, 
family to that. Uh, that's open to anyone. Uh, that's open to the community. So we're excited for the opportunity to engage our neighbors, to have some fun here together. Um, I appreciate now in a new way the whole fall harvest thing. Now that I can look out my window and see giant stocks of corn just going on for miles, or I don't know if it's corn, whatever it is. I appreciate that in a new way, living here in Medina. So uh, we're going to celebrate that together, apparently. Uh, but most of all, we're just going to celebrate being together and opening our doors to the community. So that's uh, October 28th uh, from 1 to 4 p.m. Uh, so now as we go to pray together, we want to continue to, to lift up those uh, who are going through physical challenges in our church. Uh, we particularly want to thank God for uh, Carol Kinnebrew's successful surgery Friday morning. Uh, she was able to have her heart valve uh, repaired and not need to be replaced. Uh, so please keep praying for Carol as she uh, uh, continues to recover in the ICU and has God only moved uh, from the ICU uh, hopefully this afternoon. So keep praying for her. And please also keep praying for Connie Sinuk as she continues her, her chemo, her treatment for cancer. Uh, she has some scans coming up. Please uh, keep her in your prayers as well. Uh, as we go to prayer too, uh, this past week I was in Indianapolis with Laura at a conference and I ran into a friend of mine named Chase Jones, uh, who is the pastor of a church called the Corners Chapel in Macedonia, which is a church plant of the chapel that's recently gone independent. So uh, this morning I thought it'd be appropriate to pray for them uh, as, as our local church uh, friend and partner in the gospel. And uh, we're also going to be praying for a global church this morning for uh, the church in, in the Maldives, which is number 15 on the world watch list of, of countries in which it is, it is dangerous to be a Christian. So we'll be, be praying for that church as well this morning. So with that in mind, uh, please bow and pray with me. Father, we thank you this morning for the privilege we have to gather together in this space, in this building as a church family, Lord. And as we think about this gift you've given us in this building, help us, Lord, give us more opportunities to, to use it, not just on Sundays, but during the week for uh, service, to, to serve our neighbors, to give them space to meet and do homework or gather or use the fields or whatever, Lord. Help us to just keep looking outward and how we use this, this space that you've given us and Lord, also use it as a, as a place of welcome, as a place of a fellowship and community together. Um, help us to encourage one another here through our worship, through singing songs, through uh, sharing your word with one another as we respond to the sermon or respond to the classes and the studies that we go to. Lord, but also help us to go out from here, to take your word out into the world, into our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our schools. Uh, let what we do this morning, our worship, our study of your word, let it propel us this week to love and serve our neighbors, to share the gospel with them right where they are. Um, so Lord, help us in that, we pray, in our weakness, by the power of your spirit. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have to practice that on the 28th, to invite the community in. We pray that you'll work out all the details for that fall festival, and um, you'll uh, bring more people who might not normally come to uh, a church uh, that they'd be, be welcome and they'd be encouraged. Lord, help us to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. And we thank you for, for Carol's successful surgery on Friday. Help her to continue to recover, uh, to get back to normal uh, sooner rather than later. Help her to, to get moved to a regular room soon and um, to be able to come home uh, sometime this week and just let it all uh, be worked out according to your will. Thank you for the doctors and the nurses who are caring for her. Please comfort her and Russ as she recovers and uh, as they enter this, uh, this, this new season of recovery, just be with uh, them in your grace and your power and your spirit in, in a mighty way, in a way that only makes sense because it comes from you. We pray similarly for, for Connie as she goes through chemo, for Vic as he cares for her, 
strengthen her, equip her with your spirit to be a light to the, to the nurses and the doctors that they interact with and help the, the treatment to be effective, help them to have positive results from these scans coming up and um, let your will be done in, in her body and in that situation and, and most of all in, in, in her heart and in Vic's heart, Lord, as they walk with you, bring them closer to you through this and help them to be uh, witnesses for you in the midst of their, this hardship. And Lord, we thank you for, for fellow uh, like-minded gospel churches like the Cornish Chapel. We thank you for Chase and his wife Amanda and their kids, for uh, their elders and their staff, for the, the ministry that you've given them in Macedonia. Uh, help that church to continue to grow and, and flourish as they meet and together, as they worship together, as they serve together. Um, Lord, grow them and grow your kingdom through them for your glory. And we'll lift up the Maldives to you as well for the church there and uh, the persecution there as as Christians are not even allowed to, to legally, technically exist in that country, Lord. Grow your church in, in, in ways that uh, seem impossible to man. Uh, as believers meet in secret and share Bibles in secret and, and speak your word to one another, Lord, and pray together. Protect them, guide them, help them to point their friends and neighbors to Christ and, and just bring revival and bring uh, reformation there. Uh, for with more people coming to faith, establish your kingdom in that place and other places. Uh, where it seems so hard to reach people, where things seem so closed off. Remind us, even as we think about the cross, of how you can make a way out of no way, how you can bring life out of death, how you can work even through suffering and hardship to carry out your glorious purposes. So work there in that country. Work in the hearts of believers there. Work in our hearts this morning as we worship you, as we praise you, as we think about all you are and all you've done for us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, it's that time again to uh, invite the kids on up to the front. So any kids, fifth grade and below, you can come on up and uh, we'll, we'll meet together and we'll do our next uh, catechism question. Very nice. Very nice. I like the attitude. I like the, I like the cockiness. Oh, Anna. Keep doing that. That's like, that's our new game. I like that game. Well, hey, well, good morning, guys. Welcome back once again. Boy side, girl side. Very typical. I'm used to it. Uh, nice. Well, good morning. Break what, it. what did somebody break it? Yeah. Hey, good morning. Good to see you. Welcome. All right. So we are on question number forty-four. Raise your hand if you can count to forty-four. Raise your hand if you can count to forty-four. I didn't raise my hand because I'm not confident that I can. Um, but we are on question. Dad gets no. mixed up, but ninety-nine, so he can't count to one hundred. Your dad can't count to one hundred. That tracks. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Um, <laughs> You said that. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, so we are on question number 44, so we'll see it uh, pop up on the screen here. We'll read it together. Number 44 in the catechism question. If it doesn't pop up, I have it on my phone, so don't worry. Right? Right? So question number 44. Here's what we got this week. We are on the question. Last week we talked about what is baptism and communion. We talked about these two uh, ordinances that God's given us. And this morning we are looking at the question, uh, what is baptism? What is baptism specifically? Hey, there it is. Cool, cool. Uh, baptism is washing with water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, why'd you say it like that? <laughs> that was awesome. Uh, is baptism is the washing with water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So I have a question for you. How many of you guys ever help your mom or your dad or your grandma or your grandpa? Not just in general. Wait for me to finish the question. Um, <laughs> how many of you ever help them wash the dishes? Raise your hand. When do you help us wash the dishes? 
No, I'm just kidding. You do. You do. You have us put away at least. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you? Why do we need to wash dishes sometimes? Yes. So we make the dishes cleaner, right? Because they get dirty from all the spit and all the eating and all the gross stuff that comes out of our mouths, right? So we make them cleaner, right? That's the same way we take baths and we take showers, right? We need to clean ourselves and we use water to do that. We use water to clean the, the dirty things in our dishes, the dirty parts of our bodies. And in scripture, we see, we see in the Bible, we see water is used similarly. Water is used to, to cleanse, to purify, to wash away sin. And the teaching of the Bible is that when Jesus went to the cross, when he died in our place for our sins, he did that to wash us, to make us clean. He did that to cleanse us from our sin, our rebellion, all the things that separate us from God. And so if you believe in Jesus, you're cleansed, you're washed clean. And so what baptism is, this thing we do where you go into the water and you go under the water, you come out of the water because you've, uh, you've believed in Jesus, you've told people that you trust in Jesus, that baptism, that, that washing of water in baptism, it's a symbol, it's a reminder of how if we believe in Jesus, we're cleansed from our sin, we're washed clean in him. And so baptism is this symbol, it's this picture of the washing, the cleansing that we have in Jesus, because we don't need to just wash dishes, we don't need just to wash our bodies, we need to have our hearts washed, we need to have our hearts cleaned by faith in Christ. And so if you trust in Jesus, we then get baptized as a public uh, declaration of how we've been cleansed, how we've been washed clean by him, in him. Does that make sense? Yeah? Any questions about that? No? Good? All right. Uh, so think about that the next time you're, you're helping your parents with the dishes, because I know that you really do, right? Right? All right. So let's, let's pray. <laughs> let's pray together. Uh, Father, we thank you for this reminder that we have, for this hope that we have, that even though we are full of sin, even though we are, we, are, we are dirty spiritually, that you have washed us clean uh, in the blood of your Son, that through faith in Christ we can be cleansed from all the things that separate us from you, all our failure, all our uh, selfish good works, all our pride, all our sin. So we thank you for how we can be cleaned and cleansed in Christ. We thank you for the gift of baptism, which is a picture of this cleansing and this cleaning that we have in Christ. Lord, so help us to, to come to trust him if we don't, to come to trust in Jesus if we don't, and to, to celebrate and remember together as a church family through this picture of baptism, uh, of how the blood of Christ washes away our sins by your grace and for your glory. So help us to remember this and rejoice in this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, it's time to go to, to Weymouth Kids Children's Church, so you can follow uh, Mrs. Martin here. And then we'll, uh, we'll stand and we'll sing another song together, so please stand with us. Scorn and 
Son to save us, Lord. We praise you. We praise your name. Um, Lord, I pray that as we come together today to continue to worship you, um, I pray that we would not just get caught up in the repetition and the, um, the mundane and the, um, the habit of just coming here every Sunday morning and, and, and doing, doing church. Lord, I pray that, we, that you would work in each and every one of our hearts to, um, to worship you and to praise you and to honor and glorify you in every thought and word and action. Lord, I, I thank you for Pastor Chris and for his faithfulness to you. I pray that we would just quiet our own hearts and um, hear what you have to teach us this morning, Lord. Pray all this in your name. Amen. Man, you may be seated. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Mark. I'll only uh, get to say that one more time here as we'll uh, be finishing the book next Sunday. Uh, so we are, we are coming to the end of Mark's gospel uh, in chapters 15 and 16 with the, the crucifixion this morning and the resurrection uh, next Sunday. Uh, we've been going, th- going through the book for, for quite a while here, so it's, it's, it's a privilege, God willing, to be coming to the end of it. Um, and then we'll see what God has for us next. But this morning we are uh, going through the, the passion narrative, the, the Mark's account of the crucifixion and, and death of Christ. So we'll be looking at Mark 15. Uh, verses 21 through 39, Mark 15, 21 through 39, and then we'll finish the book next Sunday. So you can turn there, Mark 15, starting in verse 21, and you can uh, follow along as I read it for us. 
And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of, Alex the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Amen. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Father, as we come to your word now, please open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Now, recently, I uh, came across an old article, an older article from Tim Keller uh, about The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. And I don't know if there's ever been anything written that is more on brand for me than that, right? An article by Tim Keller about Lord of the Rings, about J.R.R. Tolkien. These are my two favorite authors, so you might as well have just titled that article, Hey, Chris, this one's for you, right? <laughs> and so, of course, I read the article, and one, one really striking thing that Keller points out uh, is that in the book, in the Lord of the Rings, uh, this, this great book, this great fantasy story, this great modern myth, what makes it different from any other ancient myth that inspired Tolkien is that it wasn't a, a story about a hero who goes to gain something, right? a hero who goes to gain riches or, or power or strength. It's a story about a hero who goes to lose something. At the center of the Lord of the Rings is, of course, the hobbit Frodo, who he's been, he's been charged and trusted with destroying the, the evil one ring. But in doing so, in carrying out that mission, he loses his ability to ever truly have peace in the world because of what he suffers. And when discussing this with his friend uh, Sam, Frodo explains this. He says, it must often be so, Sam, when things are in danger. Someone has to give them up, lose them so that others may keep them. And so the Lord of the Rings, it's a fictional story, a great myth about a hero who goes to lose something. But when we come to the book of Mark, when it comes to Mark's gospel, we see 
that Mark's gospel is a true story about a hero who goes to lose something. Mark's gospel has been building up to this moment where Jesus loses his life at the cross. To this moment where he gives up everything that others may gain everything. And here in these verses before us in Mark 15, 21 uh, to 39, we reach the climax of this story. The, the crescendo of this story where the death of Christ on the cross leads to the division of the curtain and the declaration of the centurion. You see these powerful pictures, these powerful scenes here where the death of Christ leads to the division of the curtain and the declaration of the centurion. We'll see what that means and how that, how that theme unfolds this morning by looking at these three headings. First, the death of Christ, then the division of the curtain, and finally, the declaration of the centurion. As we look at each of these, we will see that the Savior who dies, this hero who gives up everything, truly he is the Son of God. That's what we'll see together this morning by looking first at the death of Christ, the death of Christ. Because here at the end of Mark's gospel, Jesus has been arrested, he's been abandoned, he's been condemned, he's been scourged, he's been beaten, he's been mocked. And now he's delivered over to be crucified. They send him out, they lead him out to crucify him. And when criminals were crucified in the Roman Empire, typically they were required to carry their cross or at least the cross beam on their backs as they walked to the place of crucifixion. But as Jesus does this, as he goes to carry his cross, because he is so, has been so brutally beaten, because he has literally had his flesh torn from his body, he is too weak to carry the cross by himself. And so the soldiers, they compel a man passing by, Simon of Cyrene, who's the father of Alexander and Rufus, who were likely known by Mark's original readers as eyewitnesses. Uh, he, they compel Simon to carry the cross for Jesus. And they lead Jesus out to Golgotha, the place of the skull, a hill outside of Jerusalem. And there they, they offer Jesus this interesting mix of, of wine mixed with myrrh. And what that is, is that is just a sedative, essentially. It's a numbing agent that they would offer to Jesus as, as a way of, of numbing his pain a little bit, of, of, of stymieing a bit of his suffering. But Jesus refuses. He refuses it. He, he wants to stay alert to experience the full weight of his suffering. And so then, they crucify Jesus. They crucify Jesus. They nail him to the cross. It's important to remember here uh, what crucifixion is. It was invented by the Romans, and essentially crucifixion was a form of death. It was essentially death by suffocation or exhaustion. If you were crucified to the cross, if your hands and feet were nailed to the cross, essentially what would happen is in order to take a breath, you would literally have to, to pull yourself up, pull your chest up by, by your wounds, by your hands and your feet, which had been nailed or tied to the cross. Every breath was a struggle. Every breath was agony. And, and victims typically lingered for days and they would pass out for a time and they would wake up again into a living nightmare. Crucifixion was designed by the Romans for, for criminals and rebels and slaves. They designed it to, uh, cr to create maximum suffering 
to create maximum spectacle. And this is what Jesus suffers on the cross. But what's interesting is Mark he doesn't spend a ton of time digging into the horrific physical details about the crucifixion. Instead, he wants us to, to focus in on the horrific spiritual weight of the crucifixion that Jesus suffers. And we see this starting in verse 24, where Mark tells us, he says that the, the soldiers who had crucified Jesus, they cast lots, essentially they, they rolled dice or flipped a coin for, for his garments, because victims were usually crucified naked and in shame. So these guards, they cast lots for Jesus' clothing, and the language here, the language here, it points us back earlier into the Bible. It points us back to the book of Psalms, to specifically Psalm 22. Because in Psalm 22, we have a psalm of David, David who is Israel's greatest king. And in Psalm 22, David, he, is, he cries out to God. He's in the midst of suffering unjustly at the hands of his enemies. And so in verses 16 to 18, David, he declares, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. You see, in Psalm 22, David is portrayed, as commentators put it, he's portrayed as a righteous sufferer. He is the Lord's anointed king. He's facing unjust suffering at the hands of his enemies. He's crying out for deliverance from God. And what strikes us about Mark 15 is that as we read it, if we've read Psalm 22, we'll see that Mark 15 is filled with these references, these allusions to Psalm 22. Because on the cross, Mark tells us, Jesus is also mocked. He's mocked by a sign that's hung on the cross. He's mocked by those who pass by, who wag their heads at him. He's mocked by the religious leaders. He's even mocked by the two robbers who were crucified on his right and on his left. And this language here of people mocking Jesus, of people wagging their heads at Jesus, it also points us back to Psalm 22, to verses 6 and 7, where David cries out, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. These, these connections are striking. What David is saying in Psalm 22 is happening to Jesus in Mark 15. His hands and feet are pierced. People mock him. They wag their heads at him. They, they say, you know, let the Lord deliver him. These allusions to Psalm 22 are, are important to see. They're, they're essential to see because what's happening here is that by connecting Psalm 22 to Jesus' suffering on the cross in Mark 15, the gospel is announcing that Jesus is the ultimate David. He's the ultimate anointed king who suffers unjustly at the hands of his enemies. He's the ultimate righteous sufferer who experiences ultimate suffering and forsakenness. And we see this as Jesus, as he spirals deeper and deeper into suffering and, and forsakenness, specifically as we look at verses 33 and 34 of Mark 15. Mark tells us in these verses, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this might surprise some people to hear, uh, but when I was younger, I was a Boy Scout. When I was a kid, I was a Boy Scout. 
I should, I should rephrase that. When I was a kid, I was a Boy Scout for one year, right? And I, I, I couldn't hack it. I couldn't do it. Uh, I quit after one year. You're looking at a lifelong tenderfoot here, people, um, if that means anything to you. So it's pretty impressive, right? I know. Um, the Boy Scout for one year, and during that one year, we went on one uh, spelunking trip, right? We went on one trip of, of where we explored some caves for some reason. I still don't know why we did this. Um, but I remember at one point our guide taking us into a cave and taking us into this, this deep inner cavern in the cave. And once in there, he told us to turn our flashlights off, to turn our headlights off, and to just experience the darkness. And I can still remember, you know, however many years later, that moment of just utter and complete darkness in that cave with no light at all. I remember I couldn't even see my hand in front of my face. The darkness was so thick, it was like syrup. It was so thick, it was so weighty. And when we see dark, darkness mentioned in Scripture, darkness is also weighty and thick in Scripture because in the Bible, darkness is used as a picture of God's wrath. It's used as a picture of God's wrath. Maybe the, the best example of this is in the book of Exodus. When God, he sends the, the ten plagues on the Egyptians and the ninth plague is darkness, utter and complete darkness. In Exodus 9, God tells Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. Darkness to be felt. That was the sign of God's judgment against the Egyptians, that weight of darkness. And what we see happen on the cross from the 6th hour to the ninth hour, from noon to 3 p.m. at the moment when the sun is highest and brightest in the sky. That darkness covers the whole land while Jesus is crucified. That in the middle of the day, as he hung on the cross for three hours, Jesus himself experienced a darkness to be felt. He, the perfectly innocent one, who had in himself no sin, he bore in himself the crushing darkness of God's judgment, the infinite weight of his Father's wrath. And so he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this cry here of Jesus, as he's forsaken by his Father under the weight of his wrath, this cry is also a direct quote from Psalm 22. From Psalm 22, verse 1, where David cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is the ultimate righteous sufferer on the cross. Jesus is the, the perfect king. This righteous sufferer goes deeper and deeper into suffering until he experiences a suffering, a darkness, a forsakenness that is greater than anything anyone has ever experienced. He who is one with his father, he had his father's love removed from him and it was replaced with his father's wrath, with his father's judgment for sin. That's what Jesus experiences on the cross, the infinite weight, the infinite darkness of God's judgment. And it costs Jesus his life. He utters a loud cry and he breathes his last. And some commentators believe here that this final cry in the book of Mark is the same cry that's recorded for us in John chapter 19, verse 30, where Jesus cries out, It is finished, before bowing his head and giving up his spirit. It is finished. 
See, Jesus, as he dies on the cross, as he gives up his life, he declares that the work he came to do is finished. That the work he came to accomplish as this perfect, righteous sufferer, this work of coming to die on the cross, to be forsaken by his Father, that work is finished in his death on the cross. See, this is the whole point Jesus came to earth. This is the whole point of his incarnation, of his taking on human flesh, of his coming from heaven and earth. He came to go to the cross to suffer and die, to bear the weight, the darkness of God's judgment. He came to be forsaken by his Father. And that leads us then to ask the question, why would he do that? Why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus, who was perfect, who was innocent, why would he willingly suffer this judgment and this forsakenness? And I have to tell you, Weymouth, that the answer to that question, why would he do this? It's, it's the, the very climax, not just of Mark's gospel, but of all of human history. The answer to that question will answer every single one of your other questions about life and God and suffering and purpose. Why did Jesus do this? Why did he go to the cross? The answer will change everything for you if you believe it. And this answer comes for us through a division and a declaration. A division and a declaration. First here, a division, the division of the curtain. Uh, last year, around this time last year, we started a, a renovation project on our kitchen. And uh, the, the church was really helpful with it. And one of the things we had to do was we had to demo the kitchen. We had to knock down a couple walls. And, and some guys here at the church were, were really helpful in coming and helping us uh, demo the kitchen, demo those walls. And when it came time to uh, knock down those walls, uh, somebody from this church, who I won't say his name because he's not here right now, Chris Smith, uh, he told me that it'd be really funny if I ran through the wall like the Kool-Aid man, right? right? Have you seen, you remember those commercials where he, he goes, oh yeah, and he runs through the wall or whatever? Yeah, I was, I was uh, encouraged to do that. Uh, and so I just remember I had this moment where I'm staring at a wall. It wasn't a very big wall, it was pretty flimsy, but I'm on one side of a wall, I'm staring at it, and what I thought would happen is I would just run through it and bust a hole in the wall, you know, like the Kool-Aid man does. Um, what actually happened is I ran into the wall, and the wall just fell on top of me. Like, it just, it broke in half, and it just came right on my back. Now, again, it wasn't a very heavy wall, so I was fine. But it was a weird experience to be looking at a wall, right, and to run into that wall, and then all of a sudden to be on the ground with the weight of that wall falling on top of me. And then I look up, and I see Chris and others laughing at me. Um, but also I see that, oh, I'm, I'm in a different room now. Like, I'm in the family room. The, the, the way from the kitchen into the family room has been completely opened because this wall has come down, and it's open forever. If you go to my house now, there's still no wall there. There's an open space. It's an open concept, you know, living room. It's pretty cool, uh, right? And, and, and that's what we see happening here in a much more significant, in a much more uh, powerful, a much more eternally significant way, that what happens is at the cross, Jesus, he allowed the weight of death, the weight of God's judgment to fall on him. And in doing so, he opened a whole new way, a whole new space for sinners to have a relationship with God. And that way is open forever. That wall is forever removed. And we see this in what happens immediately after Jesus dies. 
Because Jesus, he utters a loud cry. He breathes his last. And then in verse 38, Mark tells us, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain that was torn in two from top to bottom. Now what Mark is talking about here is that in the temple in Jerusalem, uh, there was in the temple, you know, the temple centerpiece, the centerpiece of Israel's worship with God. Inside that temple, there was an inner room called the Holy of Holies. And this was the space where the, the priests would go to make offerings and to make prayers. And inside that inner room, there was an even more inner room called the Holy of Holies. Sorry, it's the holy place is the inner room, and there's an inner inner room called the Holy of Holies. It's a little confusing. It's a lot of holiness going on, right? So there's this inner room, the Holy of Holies, and in that inner, inner room was said God's presence was said to dwell. God's glorious presence, we read in books like Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God's, as God dwelt among his people, his glorious presence dwelt over the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, in the innermost room in the temple. And in this room, in the Holy of Holies, uh, there was a door, and that door, on that door there was set a, a huge curtain, something like 30 feet high, this huge, huge, thick curtain. And the purpose of that curtain was meant to separate the Holy of Holies, separate the holy presence of God from the rest of the temple. Because human beings were not allowed to enter the, the purity, the holiness of God's glory and presence. Because of our sin, because of our failure, because of our rebellion, we can't enter into the presence of a holy, just God. Because he has to destroy, he has to punish sin. And so the way the temple was set up was you have this inner, inner room, this holy of holies with a curtain keeping anyone from entering God's presence. The only time someone was allowed to go through was once a year on the Day of Atonement. And even then, it was only the uh, supposedly most holy person in Israel, the high priest. And so what happened on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur is that the high priest, he would make a series of sacrifices uh, for himself to purify himself. Then he would put on clothing that had the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on it. And he would make another sacrifice, and he would take the blood of that sacrifice, and he would walk through the curtain into the Holy of Holies. And there he would take the blood from that sacrifice and sprinkle it on the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the presence of God. And so what he was doing there is he was making a sacrifice of atonement, which means to pay the price. He was paying the price for the sins of the people in the presence of God's holiness. And so we see in the way that uh, the temple is structured in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, we see that God is so holy, he is so righteous, he is so perfect, he has to deal with sin so completely that no one can come into his presence even as he dwelt with his people. There was only one person and then only once a year and only after making sacrifices for himself that this person could even enter God's presence to make a sacrifice for sin for all the people. That was the only time, that was the only reason anyone could cross through the curtain was to make a sacrifice of atonement. But once a year. That was the setup, that was the purpose of the curtain, but then Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus goes to the cross where he is forsaken by the Father, where he experiences the darkness of God's judgment. And do you see this when he dies, the giant curtain in the temple that separated the holy of holies from the rest of the temple, that separated the holy presence of God from sinful human beings, that curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. 
And that was not a man-made division. That was a division that only God could make. And what does this mean? Well, it means that because Jesus bore the weight of God's judgment on the cross, because he gave himself as the ultimate sacrifice of atonement for sin, the way into God's presence is now open forever. Even for sinful, broken human beings, the curtain no longer separates people from our holy God. And so because Jesus died on the cross, because when he went to the cross, what Jesus was doing is he was forsaken by the Father. He died in our place. He suffered as our substitute, as our perfect sacrifice of atonement for our sins. He bore that judgment that we deserve in his own body. He died the death that we deserve to bring us into God's presence. And so in Christ, we no longer need a human high priest. We don't longer need somebody who can come between us and God. Because in Christ, we have a perfect high priest who went into the presence of God to make a final sacrifice for the sins of his people. And we no longer need to make sacrifices for our sins. Because Jesus himself was the ultimate, once for all, final sacrifice for our sins. He perfectly satisfied God's just wrath in his death as our substitute. So that in him our sins can be forgiven. We can come into God's holy presence. It is finished. The curtain is torn. So your failure, your mistakes, your addictions, your pride, your anger, your envy, none of that is enough to keep you anymore from God if you trust in Christ. None of that can keep you away from his presence. None of that can lead him to cast you out because Christ was forsaken for you. He was forsaken in your place. He bore the weight that we deserve to bring us into the presence of God, his Father. And so we can come to God not on the basis of, of our perfect work, but on the basis of Christ's finished work. Not because we've sacrificed so much for him, because he, but because he sacrificed everything for us. Not because of our worthiness, but because of his grace. Because of the way he made in the gift of his son. So what do we do with this news? How do we respond to this gift is the question. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10. Listen to this. This right here is the heart of the Christian faith in Hebrews 10. The author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. This is how we respond to this gift. This is how we respond to the finished work of Christ, by drawing near in boldness, in confidence, in faith, by holding fast to the confession that Christ alone is our hope, is our salvation. And this kind of confession is exactly what we see then in verse 39. In verse 39 of Mark 15, because the crescendo is still going. 
We are still ramping up to the full climax, to the high point of its book, of this book which we find in the declaration of the centurion. So from division to declaration, the declaration of the centurion. Look with me at verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. When he talks about the centurion here, a centurion was a Roman soldier, was a hardened soldier who had, been, who had risen up through the ranks to command a legion of 100 men in the Roman army. And this centurion here in Mark, he was responsible for guarding Jesus and guarding the other men who had been crucified. And it was likely that this guy did this a lot. This was his job. And so this centurion, he had seen a lot of people die by crucifixion. He'd seen their pleading. He'd seen their cries. He had seen their suffering. But when he saw the way that Jesus died, when he saw the way that Jesus cried out to his father, the way that he was able to maintain his dignity on the cross, the way he had strength to cry out with a loud voice and give up his spirit. When the centurion saw this, he made a declaration. He says, truly, this man was the son of God. And this moment, this declaration right here, this is an astounding moment. This is an astounding declaration. This is the drop the mic moment in Mark's gospel. This is the moment the entire book has been building up to. Because if you go back to the very beginning, the very first sentence of Mark in Mark 1.1, you read these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. See, in the very first sentence, Mark is declaring that this gospel is an announcement of good news about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who is the Son of God. And then if you go a little later in chapter 1, we have uh, the scene of Jesus' baptism. Where when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And so in chapter 1, first Mark in his opening, he declares that Jesus is the son of God. And then at the baptism of Christ, God the Father himself declares that Jesus is his son. But throughout the rest of the book of Mark, no other person has made this declaration. The disciples at times, they recognized Jesus as the Christ, but they never confessed him to be the Son of God. The religious leaders, they were hostile to Jesus. They condemned him for even hinting at having a divine identity. So after Mark 1, we go the whole book without anyone agreeing with Mark's thesis statement that Jesus is the Son of God. In 14 chapters, nobody gets it until we get to this Roman centurion who witnesses the cross, this hardened Gentile soldier who had no connection to Jesus, who was outside of the people of God. But then he sees something in how Jesus died that leads him to declare that Jesus is the Son of God. This crucified, suffering, dead man is the Son of God. And look again at the sequence of events here in Mark 15. First, Jesus breathes his last. There's a tearing of the curtain and then a declaration of Jesus as the Son of God. There's a tearing and then a declaration. Where have we seen this pattern before? We just talked about it in the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus is baptized, there's a tearing of the heavens and there's a declaration from the Father that Jesus is his Son. 
And then at the crucifixion in Mark 15, there's a, a tearing of the curtain and then a declaration from the centurion that Jesus is the Son of God. See, Mark's gospel opens with God himself declaring that Jesus is his Son, but it ends with a man declaring that Jesus is the Son of God. What was once announced only by God is now declared by the most unlikely person. What has been hidden or misunderstood or rejected throughout the book is now confessed openly by a hardened soldier who presided over the deaths of others who had no connection to Jesus. This is who gets it. This is who declares it. This is who says it at the end. It's even more amazing when you think about that a Roman soldier declaring a crucified man to be the Son of God would have been unthinkable in that culture. It would have made no sense. Because in the Roman Empire, it was only the Caesars, the kings, who were allowed to be declared as divine men. In the Roman Empire, there were coins that were printed that had the phrase, Son of God, inscribed on them, along with an image of Caesar. It was the Caesars who were declared to be sons of God in the Roman Empire. Meanwhile, crucifixion was seen as the most humiliating, the most shameful death a person could experience by the Romans. So for this centurion to see this crucified man, to see this dead man, and claim that he was not just a son of God, but the son of God, this is something that's beyond comprehension. This is an act of divine grace, an act of divine revelation. Because in the divine power of God, the way that Jesus died revealed to this centurion that this crucified man, this righteous sufferer, he was a king even greater than Caesar himself. And for Mark's original readers, this would have been unthinkably powerful. Mark's original readers who were themselves uh, suffering persecution at the hands of a Caesar, who were being threatened and arrested and killed by the Roman Empire this moment where Jesus is declared as a greater king than Caesar, not in his moment of conquest, but in his moment of ultimate suffering. It's remarkable. It's powerful. It's life-changing. Because what we see here is that Jesus is revealed as the Son of God. He is revealed as greater than any earthly king or authority. And this revelation comes uh, not as Jesus conquered, not as Jesus started a political revolution, it's revealed as Jesus, the Son of God, suffered and died on the cross. See, Jesus' divine identity, it's revealed not through political power. It's revealed not through a radical revolution. It's revealed through substitutionary sacrifice. His authority is revealed through weakness. His kingship is confirmed on a cross. And if God can do that, if he can carry out his saving purposes and reveal the authority of his son from a cross, then what have we to fear from our own crosses? What have we to fear from suffering? What have we to fear from persecution? What have we to fear from a fallen, hostile world? Because God worked through the suffering of his son, the death of his son, to usher in his kingdom to usher in a kingdom that is far greater than any Caesar or chief priest or disciple could ever have imagined. A kingdom that can include even the most unlikely, unworthy people who look to the cross and see in his suffering that Jesus truly is the Son of God. And so then we begin to see 
why Mark's gospel has been building to this moment, why this declaration is the high point of the book. Because in this moment, in the declaration of the centurion, Mark confronts us with a key appeal, with a key question of the entire gospel. And that question is, will you make the same declaration? Will you make the same declaration? You know, I have a, a clear memory uh, from when I was a kid, long before I became a Christian. For some reason, I was, I was in a church. Uh, I was, it was a different church than the one I ended up going to, but I was in a church, and I saw on the wall, I can see this clearly in my head still, I saw they had uh, the Stations of the Cross carved in stone along the walls. These are pictures, these are, de- these are depictions of each step of Jesus' journey to the cross. And I remember as a kid seeing this clearly, and, and it really hitting me for the first time, how horrible what Jesus suffered, how horrible his suffering was. I remember seeing that and thinking, man, that's awful. That's horrible what Jesus had to go through. But what I didn't see yet, and thankfully in God's grace I eventually did come to see, but at the time I didn't understand, what I didn't understand was, why did Jesus have to do that? Why did Jesus have to go through that? Why did he have to endure such horrible suffering in the crucifixion? And maybe you're here this morning and you've had similar thoughts, similar questions. Maybe you've been around the church before, you've heard the story of Christ's crucifixion, you've seen how horrible it was, but you don't understand why it happened. You don't understand why it was necessary, what what was its purpose. Maybe you're here and you feel like you've lived a pretty good moral life. You've, You've done good things for people, you've gone to church, or you've obeyed moral rules. So you're not exactly sure why this cross business would have even been necessary. Why Jesus would have had to die for sin because you think you're pretty good. You don't think you need a substitute or a savior. Or maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you've made so many mistakes. You've failed so many times. You've messed up so much that there's no way that a holy God could tolerate you, let alone love you. You think maybe, no, this is, this is too good to be true. Deep down, you don't believe that God would love you so much, that he would value you so much, that he would willingly send his son who would choose to lay down his life and suffer for you in this way. There's no way you think that I'm valuable, that valuable to him. If you, if you are there, if you struggle with either of these ways of thinking, then let me call you, let me encourage you, look to the cross. See how the death of Christ led to the division of the curtain and the declaration of the centurion. Because there was a curtain that separated us in all our sin from God's holy presence. But when Christ died on the cross, that curtain was torn in two. Because Jesus did everything necessary to pay the price for our failure, for our sin. So yes, we are full of sin that needs to be paid for. But God is so full of grace that he sent his son to pay that price for us. As Richard Sibbs put it, there's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And so when you look to the cross, when you see the curtain torn in two, then you can know, we can know without a doubt, that on the one hand, our goodness can never be so great that we don't need Christ. But on the other hand, our badness can never be so great that Christ can't meet our need. Our goodness can never be so great that we don't need Christ, but our badness will never be so great that Christ can't meet our need. The curtain is torn. 
it is finished. So today, don't let your goodness hold you back. Don't let your badness and your sin and your failure hold you back. Remember the declaration of the centurion. Remember that even the most unlikely, even the most unworthy people can come to Christ, can draw near to him in faith, can hold fast and declare with the centurion this confession of hope that truly this man is the son of God. So the question this morning is, will you make that same declaration? Will you hold fast to the same confession of hope? Because he who promised is faithful. Please pray with me. Gracious Father, we are humbled as we see Christ on the cross, as we see the price that our sin required, the death of your Son. But we are amazed as we see your love and your grace displayed on the cross, that you were so willing to reach out to us, to chase after us, to send your Son to pay the price for us, to bring us back, to bring us into your presence, to do everything necessary for our salvation, for our life. So help us to draw near to you in boldness and confidence in faith to hold fast to that confession of hope, whether we are making that confession for the first time this morning or whether we made that confession uh, years ago. Help us to hold fast to this confession that Jesus is the Son of God who gave himself as a substitute for us to bring us to you, even the most unworthy, unlikely people, to lead us to confess in hope that truly this man is the Son of God. And so we come to you, we draw near to you, we live for you, In his name, in his name alone, in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, let's respond to his word by standing and singing uh, together uh, once again.
was once my great opponent. Fear once had a hold on me, but the Son who died to save us rose that we would be free indeed. Death was once my great opponent. Fear once had a hold on me, but the Son who died to save us rose that we would be free indeed. Yes, he rose that we would be free indeed. Free from every pet of darkness, free to live and free to love. Death is dead and Christ is risen. It was finished upon that cross. Onward to eternal glory, to my Savior and my God. I rejoice in Jesus' victory. It was finished upon that cross. It was finished upon that cross. It was finished upon that cross. Amen. You may be seated. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. But the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so as we come into this time of communion, uh, what we are doing as a, a church family is what we have already just done in, in singing and, and in the word. We are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. That, that as people who have come to faith in Christ, who are united in Christ together, one of the most essential, important things we can do is proclaim to ourselves again and again the death of Christ for us, the victory of Christ for us through his death, through his resurrection. And so communion gives us the symbols, the, the elements, that, that picture for us, that remind us of the body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ shed for us. These things that we have just seen him do for us on the cross. Communion is a regular meal, a regular picture we can participate in together to preach this, proclaim this to ourselves and to one another. And so we would say this morning that uh, if you are here and you have professed faith in Christ, if you have looked to the cross, if you have trusted in his finished work for you, then we invite you to take the elements, to take the bread and the cup. And our, our pattern is that when we take the bread, we receive it individually. And then when we take the cup, we, uh, we hold on to it and we drink it together as a symbol of our unity in Christ. But we would also say that if you are here this morning and you haven't made that profession of faith in Christ, you haven't trusted in his finished work, you're not sure what that means. And we would invite you this morning, instead, instead of taking the elements, take Christ himself. 
draw near to him in faith. Make this confession of faith. Trust in him as your savior and not uh, yourself, not anything else. And then next time you can enter into communion with us in, in fullness of joy, knowing what these symbols mean, rejoicing together as we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as we do that, let me pray now for us for the bread. Father, we thank you for Jesus, our bread of life, who, whose body was broken for us on the cross. It was, was broken under the weight of your wrath in our place as our substitute, who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities. And the symbol of the bread now be a reminder to our own hearts, be an opportunity to proclaim his death, his brokenness for us, that we may be healed in him. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now let me pray for the cup. Father, as we've already sung and said this morning, Lord, we thank you that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sins. Thank you for how in him we can be washed with pure water. We can be sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We can stand before you uh, wrapped in Christ's righteousness. Thank you for this gift, for this cleansing that is available only in your Son, our Savior. So help us now uh, apply his work to your hearts by your Spirit. Lead us to, to faith in Christ or lead us to a, a tighter grip uh, on our hope in Christ as we remember the perfect grip uh, that you have on us through the perfect finished work of your Son, our Savior. In his name, amen.
drink together as a symbol of unity in Christ. Well, if you have any questions about what's been shared today, I'd love to talk with you, uh, answer any questions you might have about this confession, this announcement of good news in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, But as we go from here, uh, let's stand for a, a final word of benediction. So please stand. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Amen. Go in peace.